Hey, thanks for listening to the Berwyn AG Podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world. We hope this podcast helps you grow closer to the Lord. For more information, you can visit our website, berwynag.org, or you can find us on all social media platforms at Berwyn AG. If you're blessed by what you hear today, be sure to share and subscribe. Thanks, and as always, God bless. I have a difficult word to bring today, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break from this uh, Pastor Dave series on prayer that he's doing. We'll jump back into that next week when he's back, uh, but the word that I felt like God was giving me for today was uh, a tough one. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7, yeah. You can go to verse 8. It's a good place to start. I'm reading from the NIV, yes. So, I have a hard word that i got to bring, but uh, it's an important one. And so I feel like I, I, I just need to get started into it. I'm currently reading a book. Um, it's a book on the American church's complicity in America's history of racism. It's called The Color of Compromise. It's by Jamar Tisby. And uh, it is uh, a devastatingly heartbreaking, incredible telling of the church's history of looking the other way when it comes to racist attitudes and actions. Um, it's, hard, it's, hard, it's really hard to read. I'm only on chapter 3, and, uh, and I have to pace myself as I read it because the stories that it tells it tells it in a, like a survey format, which is, uh, basically starts at um, when like America started and, and like slave trade all the way up until the present times. And uh, it's really heartbreaking. The stories are really tough to read. They're stories of, of colonial Christians that um, tells about how the colonial tr- Christians really wrestled with whether or not they should baptize um, their African slaves. They... Um, they wrestled with it because they knew that they had a command from God to preach the word to all people. And they knew that they had to bring the gospel to these people, and they had to to give them this this life-saving truth of Christ. Um, But they knew that if they gave this truth of the gospel to their slaves... And if they baptized them in Jesus' name, that they would be set free. And he who's set free is free indeed. And they knew that. And so they wrestled with whether or not they should baptize their slaves. Whether or not they should give uh, this truth of the gospel to their slaves. And ultimately, they decided that they would rather disobey God than give up their free labor. They refused to baptize their slaves to give them... uh, to give them the truth of the gospel because they, they, 
felt that having slaves was more important. Eventually, that was too much for them, so they decided that they needed to clear their conscience, so they made laws that said, you can baptize slaves, but when you baptize them, they're only set free spiritually. It doesn't set them free physically. And so they literally made laws to put in place to make Christians feel at ease so that they could have slaves and follow out what they felt like God was calling them to do, which is preach the word. But they compromised the gospel so much uh, to ease their mind and ease their conscience. It tells stories of, uh, like that of John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, the, the famous hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. He saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, but John Newton was the captain, for the majority of his life, he was the captain of a slave ship. Uh, he spent the majority of his life driving uh, these vile ships from Africa to, to North America, transporting slaves. I mean, we've all seen you know, reenactments of how gross and disgusting and broken down those ships were, and we've heard just these vile stories of it, and, and he drove, he, he captained one of those ships. Uh, he got saved, and even six years after he got saved, he captained one of those ships. Um, eventually, after six years of being a Christian and, and being in the slave business, he retired from the slave business, and he went on to become a pastor. It wasn't until 30 years after his retirement that he finally denounced slavery. And when he did it, he said this. He said, I hope it will always be this, a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in the business at which my heart now shudders. The book that I'm reading, it's centered, centered around the idea that slavery and racism, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it was going to happen in America. That time and time and time again, Americans, and more specifically, the Christian church, had the opportunity to stand up and say, this isn't right. And time and time again, the church turned its eyes away from, from the evil that they were seeing and the evil that they were doing. The book tells just this, these heartbreaking stories of the church standing idly by. And... Uh, and it breaks my heart. At one point, the author um, uh, quotes, quotes the, the scripture that we're going to preach from today, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and he quotes verse 10. And, and that chapter has been eaten away with me ever since I read it. Chapter is Paul talking about a rebuke that he gave to his people. He gave a rebuke that he gave to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about how they responded to it. Rebukes are never easy, ever. It's never easy to call someone out when they're doing something that's wrong. But rebukes are absolutely necessary to our faith. The Christian church and our Christian faith does not work. It does not work if there's not a healthy balance of building people up when they're doing well and rebuking people when they've gone astray. What happens when the church operates in an area where we only build people up and we never call people out on their stuff? What happens is we end up with an atmosphere 
like that, like that that led to slavery and racism. And it's not just back then, and it's not just with, with racism. It, 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 that attitude and that era, or the attitude and the atmosphere of the church of not rebuking each other, that's what led to, to uh, the Roman Catholic Church admitting in 2004 that over 4,000 priests have sexually molested over 10,000 children. And those are just the numbers that they admit. The real numbers are, supposed, are, are supposedly uh, far greater than that. An era in an atmosphere where we don't rebuke each other is what has led to this, this new uh, scandal with the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church just admitted that for the last 20 years, they've been protecting 400 volunteers and staff members who have abused over 700 people, have abused over, uh, sexually abused over 700 people. Those 700 people, so, some of them are as young as the age of three. And, and, and the, the accusations against them are sexual abuse, molestation, and even rape. And they were protected by the church. That atmosphere. We live in an era right now where we're seeing ministers and teachers and pastors and leaders go down one after another because these, these accusations are coming forward and, and they're stepping down because they've been found out that they, they've been living a false truth. They're either stepping down because of their own abuse or they're stepping down because of their neglect to call people out on their abuse. It's a sad state of the church. But that state, that atmosphere, that only comes when the church stops rebuking each other. The American church has either forgotten or they've blatantly ignored the discipline of rebuking each other for the purpose of edification. And that's what Paul talks about in chapter 7. And so, I thought we would look at this and we talk about what a biblical rebuke is. And we're not going to be necessarily talking about how we accept rebukes. We're going to be talking about being the ones that give the rebukes. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in response to, his, to, to the report that he gets back from Titus. And he's writing to them um, about his rebuke that he gave in 1 Corinthians. And so before we dig into what's going on in 2 Corinthians, I want to first recap what the sins of the Corinthian church were. Any of you guys, can any of you guys remember the sins of the Corinthian church? Any of them? There's like a bunch of them. Sexual immorality, like there's a lot of, a lot of sexual immorality. One, he, uh, Paul says that there was uh, a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. I hope that's not his mother. <laughs> a man who's sleeping with his father's wife and worse off that, that the people of the church, the people of Corinth, um, didn't think anything of it. They never called him out. They never, they never re, you know, rebuked him or, or, or second-guessed him on it. Uh, there's prostitution going on. This is in a church, by the way. Prostitution going on. There's marital infidelity going on. Um, tons of sexual immorality. Anything else? Any other ideas? Idolatry. Yes, they were making sacrifices to, to, to foreign idols, thinking that uh, it didn't really matter, it matter because um, they didn't mean anything by it. Absolutely. Anybody else? Anyone want to take a guess? 
No? Okay, I'll give them to you. Uh, there's division. There's division in the church. Paul, Paul rebukes them for the division. They were quarreling, uh, and, there was ton, and there was jealousy. Uh, they were arrogant. Uh, they, they were bringing lawsuits against, against each other. And uh, Paul rebukes them for, for bringing these lawsuits against each other because um, he says that Christians, you should be able to work these matters out amongst yourself. Instead of, of finding someone to God, to, to, um, to in a biblical way, oversee your, your issues that you have with each other, you've chosen to, to go to the world and have the world oversee your dispute. And so he rebukes them for that. Um, uh, mistreating the Lord's Supper. That's, that's one of the, the famous ones from, from 1 Corinthians uh, it says that they were going to church, and at the Lord's Supper, they were um, getting drunk off the communion wine. They had to be taken a lot of those little cups in order to get drunk <laughs> off of communion wine. The other thing that he rebukes them for was that they were waiting to eat at communion. Paul says, <laughs> I think it's hilarious, Paul says, eat at home. <laughs> That's literally what he says in 1 Corinthians. Eat at home. Like, stop trying to, to fill yourself off the communion bread. What a ridiculous thing to have to rebuke someone on. Like, eat before you come to church. Jeez. So he rebukes them for that. Um, There's disorderly worship going on. Disorderly worship is a sin. Um, They they were speaking out all uh, out of turn. And uh, and, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about, that's where we get instructions for, for, you know, there should be only three prophecies given and only three... Only three um, words of knowledge or wisdom or tongues that are given. And uh, you know, that's where we get that instruction of what orderly worship is. And, and we, have to, we have to do that. He rebukes them for that. Last thing was they were doubting the resurrection. The leaders in the Corinthian church um, were starting to think with reason, um, and like earthly reason. And they were saying it's not possible for someone to be brought back from the dead. So Jesus really wasn't brought back from the dead. And the people were starting to, to believe this, uh, this belief of the, of the leaders. And so Paul is writing and he rebukes them for that. That is a long rap sheet of what the, first, what the Corinthian church was doing in 1 Corinthians, right? That's a long rap sheet of what they were doing. You know, it's not like, you know, they missed, missed a Sunday every once in a while. They had a lot going on. It's not like they, they weren't tithing. They, they had a long rap sheet of vile things they were doing. And so Paul writes this letter and he rebukes them for it. He rebukes them in a loving way and he rebukes them for the purpose of restoration. And we see that restoration in, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, the scripture that we're going to jump in, we're going to jump in at verse 8. So if you're ready, we're going to start there. You guys all there? It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did see it, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow has led you to repentance. Uh, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and were so and were and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no, leaves no regret, but world, worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, 
What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. So Paul gives, this is Paul's response to the report that he gets back from Titus that the Corinthian church has received his rebuke and they've changed. The goal of every rebuke is to restore someone. And so we can take a look at what Paul is talking about here. We can take a look at, at the way that he rebuked this church. And we can see based off of, off of his response to them, his response to their response, we can see how we should go about biblically rebuking each other. It's, a, it's the first thing that we want to understand about, how, about what it means to rebuke someone, to biblically rebuke someone is that it should hurt us a little bit when we rebuke someone. Paul says, says, I don't regret it, but I did regret it when I heard that my letter hurt you. Paul says, for a second I regretted writing the letter because I heard that it hurt you. If you're excited about giving a rebuke, your heart's most likely not in the right place. If you are hopped up and you're like, oh, I can't wait to tell them how wrong they were. I can't wait to, 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 to rub it in their face or to, or to say that how wrong they were or, or, or to, to rebuke them. And, and, and I can't wait to see the look on their face. If that's your heart, if, if you feel like anger is, is growing in you as you think about what you're about to do to rebuke this person, your heart's in the wrong place. And you shouldn't rebuke someone when you're feeling that. Ephesians uh, 4, 25 through 27 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. If you approach someone to rebuke them and you feel that anger growing in you, if you feel like, like, like because you've been wrong, a lot of times this happens when when we're rebuking someone who's wronged ourself. When someone has wronged us and we're, and we're approaching them about how they wronged us, there's anger that builds inside of us. And, and if we feel that anger, it's better for us to not, to, to wait until we've cooled down or wait until we've had a clear head before we rebuke someone about what they've done. You know, if someone uh, offends you on a Sunday morning, maybe take the week to think about what happened. Don't run to them at this, right after it happens when you're so full of, uh, of, uh, of anger or, or you're all worked up. Take a, take a couple days, take a couple hours and think about it. Settle down on it before you approach someone. Because if you don't, it says if you speak out of your anger, if you sin out of your anger, 
That you're giving the devil a foothold. And you're not just giving the devil a foothold in your relationship with the other person. You're giving the devil a foothold in, in your own life. Sinning out of our anger, speaking out of our anger, rebuking out of anger gives the devil the opportunity to, 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 to put a root of bitterness in us, to lead us on, on a path that's so far away from the heart of God. So if, if you're excited to rebuke someone, that sounds, sounds silly, but the reality is there's times when, you're, when you feel, oh man, I can't wait to tell him how wrong he is. If that's your heart, your heart's in the wrong place. Loop around. Come back to that rebuke. Or tell what, tell what, you, what, what happened to someone else and take them with you to, to deal with it so that you're not speaking out of your anger. You're allowing someone else to address the issue. Because if you are going to rebuke someone, it should hurt you. It should break you a little bit. There should be some brokenness. When, when, when Paul is speaking to, this, to the Corinthians, when he's writing this letter, and he's, and he's writing, he knows it's going to hurt them. He almost doesn't want to write it. It's breaking a little bit of, it's breaking a part of him. He knows it's the right thing, but it's breaking a part of him to write it because he knows the pain that this church that he loves so much is going to feel. In order to be broken, you have to care. Our rebuke should come from a father's heart. Not that we're everyone's father, but it should come with the, the heart that, that is there when a father rebukes us. My dad, uh, when he used to punish me or spank me or, or whatever it was, I didn't get punished a whole lot when I was a kid. I was a pretty good kid. No. Um, uh, uh, I actually, one time, Mike Rizzo, <laughs> one time Mike Rizzo caught me. I mean, my friends were, were, I think I was like maybe in seventh grade. We were riding our bikes home from school, and we were trying to ride really fast across traffic before cars came, and, which I know, so smart. And, uh, and, and I thought I was in the clear. I was like, my parents are never going to see what I'm doing. And Mike Rizzo saw this happening, and he pulled over, and without me even knowing what was happening, threw me in his van, threw my bike in his van, and drove me, <laughs> drove me home. And I had like, it was like I got kidnapped. I'm surprised he didn't put a bag over my head. It was, it, it, seriously, it was like, and just, you get pulled in there. But anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Um, my dad, when he was dis disciplining me, though, my dad would say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I remember, I remember call, calling BS on that one. <laughs> I'd be like, no, it's not. There's no way. BS, bologna sandwich. What were you thinking? Come on. I remember thinking, no way, it's not going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. I'm about to get hit. What are you, it's going to sting your hand a little bit? You're going to hit me, it's going to hurt me. And now I understand, being a parent now, I, I kind of understand. I only have a little guy. But I had to yell at my son for the first time. He's so little. But he's getting into that age where he's starting to reach for stuff. And, and he loves the curtains and pulling on the curtains. He's going to hurt himself with that. The other day, though, we have a carbon monoxide detect, detector plugged into an outlet, and all, we have a lot of outlets that are like his level. And he was in his walker, and he walked over to the carbon monoxide thing, and he was trying to reach for it, and he started to grab it, and he pulled it out. And right as I saw him doing it, 
I said, hey! And, and I startled him. And he started to cry. And I was like, I, I needed to stop that. I know he's little. He has no idea what I'm talking about. But I needed to establish that that's not okay. As, as little as he can comprehend, he, I need to get it clear to him. You can hurt yourself doing that. But when my son, who's seven months old, and he's like the cutest kid in the world, starts to cry, it breaks my heart. It break, broke my heart that I made him cry when I yelled at him. It hurt me a little bit. But at the same time, it needed to be done. And I'm sure as older as he gets, it's going to break my heart even more the more punishment that I'm going to have to lay out. And you guys who have, who have older kids, I'm sure you've, you've already laid out punishments for your kids that have shattered your heart, that have broken your heart, but you knew it, it's what was best for them. And so you had to do it anyway. That's the heart that we have to rebuke each other with. The heart of the parent, the heart of the father or the mother who's bringing down punishment, bringing down, bringing down an accusation against their child and consequences against their child that, that they know they need, but they also know is going to hurt them. That's, what, that's how we need to approach rebuking each other. Because rebukes are rooted in love. 1 Peter um, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, love each other deeply. We're called as Christians not to a surface-level love. We're not called to a, hey, you know, an L-U-V love. We're not called to a pat on the back, side hug, hey, love you, buddy. We're called to a deep love. A love that is so deep that in 1 John 4, 12, John says that, says that it should give off the appearance of God himself. 1 John 4, 12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. He's saying no one has ever seen God, but if they see the way that we love each other, if we love each other the way that God has called us to love each other, that deep, deep love and bond that we have as Christian brothers and sisters. If the world sees that, then they will see God. That's pretty powerful. If our love reflects the character of God, if our love is truly patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast, if, it, if, if it's not easily offended, and if it always forgives and always uh, trusts and it, if our love can be the descriptions in first description in First Corinthians uh, thirteen, if if that can be our love, if it can be a deep, godly, holy, righteous love, then when people look at us and they see it, they will see God. Peter goes on in First Peter four eight. He says, "Because love covers a multitude." Of sins. Above all, love each other deeper, deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus is or Jesus. Peter is referencing the fact that love is not easily offended. He's referencing the fact that love forgives. You see, when someone is in sin, and when we see sin, sin's purpose. The devil's purpose for sin is so that it separates us from God and it separates us from each other. 
The devil's goal when he tempts you, when, when he tries to, to, to get you to fall into sin, is to pull you away from brothers and sisters who, who, who can speak into your life. And he does that by making sin vile. Sin, is, sin naturally pushes us away. I, I wanted to, uh, I had an illustration that I wanted to do, and I just didn't have the materials for it. But um, imagine if I had a fan up here, and a fan and a piece of paper. What would happen if I turned on that fan? What would happen to the piece of paper? It would blow away, right? Because when we sin, our sin is like turning on a fan, and the paper is like people who are trying to be holy. They can't be together. We see sin and we say, man, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be part of that. Our flesh says, I don't want to be involved with this guy. Look at how broken he is. Look at how nasty he is. The world sees us. And they say, look at how, how gross and disgusting. And they're, they're irredeemable. The world says that because our sin, like a fan, is blowing that paper away. But the love, the deep love that we have for each other that Peter describes, the love that, that is described in 1 John 4, that love is like if that paper had a piece of rope tied to it and the rope was tied to the fan. That that fan might blow, but the paper was never going to go away because it's tethered to the fan. Our love, the love that we share together is what binds us together. It's what says, when, when, it's what keeps us when, someone, when someone's sin is so offensive to us. Our love is what attaches onto that person and keeps us drawn close to that person. It's what keeps us from running away. It's what keeps us from, from being disgusted by their sin. And it's what keeps us with a heart that wants to see them restored. Our love is what keeps us close to each other when, we're, when, we, when we recognize sin. It should hurt when we have to rebuke each other. But because of our great love, our great love is what makes it hurt. But our love should be so deep that we're willing to go beyond the hurt, to push through our hesitation, and to move on to a rebuke, a rebuke in love. Paul says that a biblical rebuke should bring about godly sorrow. Paul says, it's in, that's in verse uh, 10. He says, For you became sorrowful as God intended, so we're not harmed in us by any way. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Paul is introducing here the idea of two different types of sorrow. He says godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is, is, is what leads to repentance, and worldly sorrow is what leads to, to death. Paul's talking about the idea of the difference between conviction and condemnation here. Conviction speaks through the Spirit, and it speaks to someone's heart. It, it, conviction desires to see someone redeemed and restored. Condemnation, though, leaves them without hope. Condemnation comes down on them. It says you're broken, you'll never be fixed, you have no way out, you're always going to be this way. Conviction is different. 
Our rebukes should produce godly sorrow. Paul describes healthy rebukes in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instruction. That's in the NASB. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. I was researching this, this scripture and I came across this article on the website Desiring God. And uh, the guy in the article, I can't remember his name, but he, uh, the way he put it was, was so good that I was like, I'm just going gonna, gonna to use what he's saying here because I'm not going to be able to word it better. So I'm gonna, I took his, his, his breakdown of this and I want to share it with you. He says, the word used for reprove means to reprove by exposing. Okay? It means to reveal or to expose what's wrong with each other in a way that cannot be unseen. Now, the word for sin literally means to miss the mark. Right? We've heard Pastor Dave talk about this a lot. To miss the mark. But to biblically reprove someone we have to show them the mark they missed. You understand what I'm saying? We can't just go to someone and say, hey, you're wrong. We just have to say, you're wrong because, you, you're wrong because of this. You're wrong because you missed the mark. Here's the line that you had to live up to, and you were down here. You missed it. You didn't live up to it. When we reprove someone, we have to show them where they were wrong. We have to show them why, where and why they missed the mark. We can't just show up with our, with our opinions. If we show up to rebuke someone with our opinions, if someone came to me and said, hey, Pastor Seth, you are wrong for this because I feel like you're just wrong with that. I'm not going to receive that rebuke. Why? Because I, truthfully, I don't care for the words of men. They don't mean anything to my soul. But if someone comes to me and says, hey, Pastor Seth, you're wrong for this. Here's the scripture in verse. Now, I value the words of God. And, and, and this is not talking about the world, okay? You can't go to, go to the world and say, hey, look in the scripture. Here's why you're wrong. Because the world doesn't care about the word. We're talking about dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they care about what the word says. There's power and authority in the word. And so when we, when we approach someone to, 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 to reprove them, we have to show them where they were wrong, and we do it by showing them in the Scripture. To show them the standard at which, to, to which they are called is to reveal or to expose sin or fault. The other day, uh, Dave and I were um, moving some stuff to his new place, and Dave was driving behind me. We had two separate cars, and uh, when we got to where we were going, Dave said, hey, do you know like all the lights on the back of your car are out? And I was like, What? Like, I knew one was out. I, I have the light for it. He's like, yeah, like, all your brake lights are out except for one, and, like, you have a taillight out. And he told me, basically, I've been driving around. Not only is it dangerous for me to be driving around with, with all these brake lights out, it's also illegal. I, I was driving around completely unknown. I never look at the back of my car when I'm in my car. I had absolutely no idea that I would have been driving around. Who knows how long I had been driving around like that? Who knows how long that had been how I was driving? No one said anything. No one spoke up. No one said, hey, your lights are out. Change it. No one told me that I was, that I was wrong. 
No one told me that I was driving around breaking the law, putting my life at risk. No one spoke up until I was with Dave, and Dave spoke up. Dave said, hey, your lights are out. I said, oh, my goodness. Now, full disclosure, still haven't fixed my lights. But, 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 the point is, <laughs> the, the point is, now I know. No. Uh, the point is, if no one would have ever spoken up, I would have never known. If no one ever would have showed me where I was wrong, showed me that something was wrong, I would have had no idea that I was wrong. But Dave spoke up, and in the same way when we reprove someone, if we don't speak up, how will they know? If we don't speak something out and say, you're wrong for this. This is in the scripture where it says, this is how you must live. You're a Christian brother or sister. This is what you have to live up to. This is what you're called to. And you have fallen short of that. If we don't speak that to each other, if we just assume that the Holy Spirit or God is going to convict their heart of it in their quiet time, then we're mistaken with how the Spirit works. And we're mistaken with how God has designed His body. God designed the body to, to, to work like, uh, what are the things in the body that, that, are, that fight sickness? Antibiotics. No, not antibodies. Antibodies. Okay? And white blood cells. Okay, there's lots of stuff. Whatever. Point being, in a human body, the body fixes itself. Right? It fights the, the sickness itself. We're a body. We have to, if we, if we just never addressed any issues, we'd die. We have to address those issues. And we have to do it with biblical reproof. Show them where they messed up. Show them where they missed the mark. Expose their sin. Expose the, fa the fault. Peel back the layers. Make them see. The next thing he says, reprove, rebuke. The word that he uses for rebuke here in, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, is most commonly seen, I think it's used like 30-something it says in the article, if, if you want to know the, the article, I'll give it to you afterwards. I think it's 30-something times it's used in the New Testament, and almost always it's used by Jesus. Jesus rebuked, this is the word that, that's used when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. It's when he, the word that's used when he rebukes demons. It's the word that he, that's used when he rebukes sickness. When Jesus rebukes something, Jesus' rebuke is him saying, Stop. Stop what you're doing. This has got to be fixed. The author of the article, he says, Jesus' rebuke is a cease and desist. He's saying, you can't do this anymore. The wind and the waves, I rebuke you. The wind stops. Demons, I rebuke you. They flee. Sickness, I rebuke you. And the body's healed. Jesus', Jesus rebuke was a call to stop. And in the same way, our rebuke is a call to stop and to turn from where they're going. Our rebuke is a call to repentance. When we rebuke someone, 
We're giving them an opportunity to change what's wrong. We're not just simply highlighting what's wrong. We're not just exposing what's wrong with them. If we just left it at exposing what was wrong and revealing their faults and their sins, that's condemnation. We're leaving them just in their brokenness. A biblical reproof has to highlight what's broken, but then give them an opportunity to change. Our rebuke should be like rumble strips on the highway. You know what rumble strips are? The things are blah, 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 blah. Okay? It's a warning, exactly. A rumble strip, when I was in, when I was in college, I was driving back and forth to Missouri a lot, and there was, it's an eight-hour, sometimes eight-and-a-half-hour drive, and uh, there was a couple times where I'd be driving late at night, and I'd be getting sleepy, and there was a couple times that rumble strip saved my bacon. Ba 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 It gets me to, to turn back on. But imagine if that rumble strip was placed at the very edge, right before I went off, right before the ditch. Where's the rumble strip placed? It gives you a little, a little space to where you can turn back onto the road. It's not placed all the way right before the ditch. Because if, that, if it was there, it'd have no purpose. It would let me know that I was about to die as I was dying. It would be, bum, 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 bow, and I'd be dead. But the rumble strip is, is, is placed inside just enough to where when I hit the rumble strip, it gives me time to, and it gives me time to, to correct where I'm going and to get back in my lane. If our rebukes are placed at the very end, right before destruction, if we don't give them a chance to change, if we just leave them in our brokenness, we're like a rumble strip that, just, that, that, that warns you right as you're about to die. Our rebukes should give people time and the opportunity to change. Our, 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 our rebukes should, should, should be a warning, a highlighting that, that, that something's wrong, but at the same time, a call to change call to repent, a call to restoration. The last thing that Paul says in 2 Timothy is he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. A biblical rebuke cannot be given without exhortation. I'm talking about comforting, building up, and instilling hope. We already said that if, if you leave them in their brokenness, if you don't give them hope to change, th- then that's condemnation. That's, that's wrong. It's a sin. But a biblical rebuke should come w- with hope. It should come with, uh, hey, man, I know, I know you've, you've, you've gone astray. I know this is where you're living. I know this is where you're at. I know it's broken. Here's why it's broken. But you can change. God has so much for you. God wants to bless you so much. He's waiting to to forgive you. I know you failed, but God is just waiting to forgive you. And he has so many great things on the other side of this. This is just a stumble. It's It's not who you are. God's called you to greater than this. Our rebukes have to be an exhortation as well. There has to be hope that's given. It has to build each other up. It cannot break each other down. 
Our, build, our rebukes cannot break each other down. They have to include encouraging words. Last thing that we can learn from 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, Titus was encouraged too. He was encouraged. And, I'm, and basically what, what Paul says is, I'm glad I boasted on you. Now, let me just recap. Do you remember all the things that he, that, that he rebuked them for in 1 Corinthians? Sexual immorality, prostitution, and, and uh, idolatry, and arrogance, and divisiveness, and fighting, and quarreling. All of these things, this, the brokenness, drink, getting drunk on the communion wine, not eating before you come to church. All of this stuff, that huge rap sheet. That's the last impression that Paul got of the Corinthian church. The last thing he was told about this church was everything in 1 Corinthians. And yet, before Titus comes back and tells them that, that, that the church has changed and that they, they've changed, Paul is bragging to and boasting on the Corinthian church to Titus. That's crazy. It's crazy. It shows you so much about Paul. Despite his rebuke, despite the fact that he, he saw all the wrongdoing of the Corinthian church, he still looked to the good in the people of, of Corinth. He still saw the good. He still saw the redeemable. He still saw that, 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 that they could be better. He boasted on them. It's one thing to be like, you know, deep down, they're really good. You know what I mean? But that's not boasting on you. You know, it's not like, you know, I know he's a little wild, but, you know, deep down, he's a really good kid. That's making an excuse. To boast on someone is, you should see this church. You should see what they have. You should see the passion and the fervor they have for God. You should see how great, that's boasting. Paul's boasting on these people despite their flaws. When we rebuke each other, we cannot forget the good in each other. I was recently at this, um, this uh, kind of, it wasn't a conference, but uh, they had these breakouts things. And, and one of them was on counseling married, married people. And one of the people who were teaching the class said, the first thing they ask a, a couple who's struggling with, um, with their marriage and who, who's you know, going through these hard times and is receiving marital counseling, the first question they ask is, tell, tell me how you met. They ask that question because if the, if the couple lights up when, as they start to tell how they met, they're, they're meet cute, as the movies would say. If their face starts to light up and they start laughing about, oh, and then we did this, and, and, we're, and, and the counselor automatically knows there's a lot of love here. This marriage can work. This marriage is going to be rebuilt. But if the counselor asks that question and they cannot remember the good times, clearly there had to be good times. If there wasn't good times, you wouldn't have gotten married. If you were never in love, you wouldn't have gotten married. Unless it's like an arranged marriage or something like that. But 
But if you're truly, at some point you had to be in love. So that means in order for you to say, I don't know, we never had good times. You're purposely misremembering the truth. The counselor, the person who was teaching the seminar, she said, if that's the response I get, I know that this marriage, they're going to have to fight so hard to get back what they had. And, and there's a slim chance that they'll be able to do it. Because if the couple lights up when they're talking about the good times, it means that they remember the good in each other. They remember that it's not, all, it's not just that he doesn't pick up his socks, but that he's a good man. He remembers that it's not, she doesn't just nag, but she's, she's loving and nurturing, and, 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 and she's a good woman. If they still see the good in each other, then there's a chance that they can, a great chance that they can get beyond their problems because their problems don't outweigh the good. When we're rebuking each other, we have a tendency, because we're in like a family union as a church, we see each other, we know each other's personalities, and we have a deep love that is intimate with each other where we love each other and we see all the good and we see all the bad. But when we see the bad, we have a temptation in the church to only look at the bad. When we see someone who's, who's either sinning or, or they've gone astray or they've done something wrong, we have a tendency that all we see is the negative. Paul looked beyond the negative. He said, yes, this needs to be addressed, but I know you're greater than this. I know there's good in you. I know that you are a great church worth boasting upon. When we rebuke each other, when we highlight, their, highlight the sin in each other's life, and, and we give each other an opportunity to, to respond, when we re truly rebuke each other out of a deep love that we have, we have to do so while remembering the good. We have to say, man, Ron really grinds my gears, but he's a good man. Say, Dave offended me. But I know that Dave is passionate and he has a heart for God. We have to have, we have to see the good in each other. If we don't, then, then our body is dead. We have to see the good. You know, we're a family as a church. We're a body of believers. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Family doesn't give up on each other. Family has to choose to see the good because we are tethered to each other whether we like it or not. We have a deep love that connects us and it can't be broken because it's a love that's founded in Christ. This is a heavy calling that's placed on us. I just want to I want to clear that. I want to get that out there. This is not an easy thing that we're called to do. It would be great to only talk about the good things that we do. But it is absolutely necessary. I don't want our body, I don't want our church to, to end up like what we've seen uh, both all throughout history with races and what we've seen in, in these these terrible uh, findings in the Catholic Church at Southern Baptist Church 
and all the evangelicals we've seen pummeling, falling down and stepping down. I don't want us to be like that. I want us to be a body that, that sees the good in each other, that has such a deep love that they're willing to push beyond the hurt that they know they're going to feel and then they know that, that the other person is going to feel. A church that is, is, is unified and hungry after God's righteousness. A church that's willing to rebuke each other out of love. If we can do that, we will be a healthy body. If we can do that, we'll never find ourselves in an atmosphere where things just happen. You know, those, all that stuff that I talked about at the beginning, it didn't happen overnight. The people who, who, who molested those children in the church, they didn't become predators overnight. There were signs and behavior that could have been corrected, that could have been spoken out against. But people chose not to. Let's not be those people. Let's be people that love each other so much and so deep that we're willing to call each other out when we've gone astray. Let's be the, the rumbling strips that allow that give us tell us we're wrong, but give us an opportunity to get back straight. Thanks for listening. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. We take pride in creating free content that will hopefully enrich your life and lead you closer to the heart of the Father. If you are blessed by what you heard today, help us continue to make content just like this by sharing, subscribing, and if you feel led, by contributing financially on our website, berwinag.org. As always, if there's anything that we can do to help you in your walk with the Lord, contact us on our website, berwinag.org, or on social media at berwinag. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.